Joshua 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gergesites, Hivites and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, 
Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for, for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Sira in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of, and of the elders who lived, outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and we pray that uh, we would be serious uh, in our handling of your word, uh, that we would be serious in our thinking about um, what your word is saying to us. And we pray that by your spirit that our uh, convictions would be strengthened and that our lives would be changed. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Renewing your vows, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. Uh, I remember a, a couple who were in their late 50s, who started coming along to the church that um, I was uh, working in. Uh, they weren't Christians, but they liked hanging around with people who were Christians. Uh, they were a knockabout sort of couple um, who had lived pretty colourful lives. The husband in particular was, was a real character. He was, uh, he was a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed hanging out with him. Uh, 25 years my senior, I was in my early 30s in my first church and he was in his mid to late 50s, but uh, we got on really, really well with one another. Uh, they had been through some ups and downs in their marriage, but uh, now they wanted, to, they wanted to renew their vows. They wanted to uh, commit them, recommit themselves to one another in front of their um, family and all of their friends. So uh, they held a ceremony and it was uh, not done in the church, it was done in a kind of reception centre of sorts. The uh, minister, the senior minister, uh, led them through the renewal of their marriage covenant. They renewed their vows with one another and then we all enjoyed a really nice meal and had some fun uh, on the night. There are times uh, for myself when I want to reflect on the commitment that I made uh, on the day that I married Cassie 
and uh, especially I'd like to do that on our wedding anniversary uh, to remember the things that I promised her 28 years ago. Uh, now, of course, uh, I've got a bit of an advantage remembering what I promised to Cassie because I'm a marriage celebrant and uh, I take people through these vows. If you want to see this in action, be here next Saturday. Um, but here's the, some of the things which I agreed to. The, the minister asked me this question. He said, will you love her, cherish her, honour and protect her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? To which I said, you betcha, absolutely, I will. And that, along with the other vows that are made in that ceremony, are really, they are a great expression of loving, godly faithfulness. Because when we think about what godly faithfulness is about, uh, I like to think of three things. Firstly, it's, it's unconditional. Uh, secondly, it's exclusive. And thirdly, it's lifelong. That's the kind of commitment uh, that we make in marriage. And it's uh, the sort of thing which is pretty useful to be reminded of from time to time, especially for those of us who are married. I think in some senses, and well in many senses actually, it's very much like the relationship that we have with God. Uh, in fact, when we share together in the Lord's Supper, that's a bit like a covenant renewal ceremony, isn't it? Because we, uh, it reminds us every time of God's love, of his, of his grace and his mercy towards us, and we reflect on our response to that. We reflect on uh, the response of love that we have towards God because of what he's done for us, and the commitment that we have towards him. Now, as we come to the end of the book of Joshua today, we also come to the end of the life of Joshua. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles at uh, Joshua chapter 24, and we're going to skip right to the very end. We're going to start at the end, and when, then we're going to go back to the beginning of this chapter. Uh, because... In the end, uh, in those, those verses from 28 through to 33, uh, we see that um, it brings to an end the life of Joshua, that uh, we're told that uh, Joshua dies and he's 110 years old. It's a pretty good innings, isn't it? He died at 110 years old. Uh, we're told that Eleazar the priest is buried. Remember Eleazar the priest? He was the one who, with Joshua... Uh, under God made the allocation of the land to the different tribes. And then we're told that the bones of Joseph were buried. Remember Joseph? You know, who was Jacob's son who got sold into slavery in Egypt and eventually became like the prime minister of Egypt and then brought his family down because there was a, a famine. When Joseph died, he did not want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted them to carry his bones so that he would be buried in the land that God had promised. And this is 
how Joshua, the book of Joshua, finishes up. It's a very important wrap-up, actually, because it, it, it kind of closes the story of, of God's people living in Egypt, um, being rescued from slavery in Egypt, and now they are settled, now they are even buried in the land that God promised. But I want to go back a bit further. Because before Joshua died, he wanted to secure a renewal of Israel's commitment. He wanted God's people to renew their commitment to God, to put it in writing, even to put it in stone. So let's go back to the beginning. In verse 1 of chapter 24, we see that uh, Joshua has now, he's assembled all of the tribes of Israel into one place at one time and he has summoned all of their leaders to step forward and to present themselves to God. And he wants to remind them of the basis of their faith. You see, biblical faith is not just wishful thinking, is it? Um, biblical faith is always based on uh, two things. It's based on God's revelation to us of himself. And it's based on the actual actions that God has done in the past. These are the things which form the concrete basis upon which we can trust God into the future. And so Joshua wants to recount in verses 1 through to 13, he recounts for Israel some of the key events which display God's grace and God's power. Events which have even called Israel into existence as a people. Events which have shaped them as a nation. So what does he want to remind them of? Well, first of all, he reminds them about Abraham. Can we have a look at verses 2 and 2 to 4? Joshua said to, the, to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river. That's the Euphrates River, by the way, in modern-day Iraq. And worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Let's stop there for a moment. Abraham was... Uh, you know, when we think of Abraham, we think of a really godly man. But uh, Abraham was raised in a pagan family. Uh, Abraham was raised in a family which worshipped other gods. Abraham was an idolater. But what God has done in calling Abraham, he's called him out of that and he's, uh, and he's, taken, him, he's taken him away from that. He's led him into Canaan. And as Joshua says here, God gave him many descendants. 
And you think about the story of Abraham and you think, well, it took a long time just to get one descendant from his wife, Sarah. Uh, he was very old uh, when Sarah gave him Isaac. Uh, but then Isaac had two sons. One was Jacob. The other one was Esau. Notice what it says here about Esau. Esau's family, when did they get their land? They were given their land pretty much straight away, weren't they? He says, I gave them the land of Seir. But Jacob's family, the family who would actually become God's people Israel, they were not given their land straight away. They would have to go through a significant process. In fact, they would have to suffer as slaves in Egypt. And so in verses 5 through to 7, Jacob then reminds Israel of the exodus, the escape from Egypt, the escape from slavery in Egypt. Have a look at verse 6. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. Now, God had miraculously enabled Israel to escape their slavery in Egypt. Uh, but now here, uh, uh, Joshua recounts that they were, as a nation, they were camped by the shores of the Red Sea. Now, why were they camped, before, uh, camped on, the, on the shores of the Red Sea? Why were they there? I'll tell you why they were there. They were there because that is where God had guided them to, that God had led them to, God had directed them to the shores of the Red Sea. And there's no bridge over the Red Sea. <laughs> what else do we notice there? Well, we notice that the Egyptian army was in hot pursuit. Why, was the, why were the Egyptians pursuing them? There, there's one reason. One reason that the Egyptians were pursuing them, and that is because God had again hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So that Pharaoh's army, which was a well-equipped uh, fighting machine, went after the people of Israel. See, God has brought to that point by the sea, God has brought them to the point where the Egyptian army is after them. Why has God done that? Do you see what God has done? God has actually set them up. God has placed Israel into a situation which is humanly helpless. They're trapped. They're trapped with the sea on the one side and the Egyptian army chasing after them on the other side. I've described them as being sitting ducks. Why would God do that? Well, it was for very good reason, to demonstrate his power as he created a highway through the sea which would then swallow up the Egyptian army. See, Abraham was not chosen because he was godly, he was an idolater, and Israel did not escape because they were powerful. They were in fact helpless. It was God's grace and God's power and nothing else. Now, that is like us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul 
says that we were absolutely dead in our sins, that we were completely helpless. There was nothing which we could do about our sins and that we were facing the judgment of God. We were without hope. But in Christ, God has made us alive. Paul says that it is by grace that we have been saved. It's God and it's God alone. It's not by our own strength. Well, in verses 8 through to 13, Joshua now reminds Israel how after the Exodus, they conquered the land. And it had nothing to do with their military might. Pick it up at verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again. And I delivered you out of his hand. Um, some years back, there was a, um, there was a man who came <coughs> to Port Macquarie who claimed to be a prophet. And uh, <coughs> he's what I call a prophet for profit. <coughs> he was hosted by one of the more popular churches in town here. And if you p his assistants that he brought with him, if you paid them $50... They would prophesy about your future, but his prophecies were worth more than that, uh, double in fact. hundred bucks, and this guy would prophesy over you. A prophet for profit. It's hard to forget a guy like that when he comes to town. Now, <coughs> when Israel was uh, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, they were in Moabite territory. And the king of the Moabites was Balak. He was deeply concerned when he saw the Israelites uh, heading into his territory. And he knew of a prophet who was a prophet for prophet uh, by the name of Balaam. He knew that this man Balaam, whenever he prophesied <clears throat> and whenever he pronounced a curse on something, it seemed to come true. And when he pronounced a blessing on something, it seemed to come true as well. And so he decided to put him on the payroll, a prophet for profit. But because of God, even Balaam blessed Israel. <clears throat> you can read about the story in the book of Numbers. <clears throat> but um, Balaam was on his way to, uh, to Balak, the king of the Moabites, and he was on the back of his... Uh, his donkey, and the donkey could see an angel standing in front of him on the road. And this donkey, which was usually not stubborn, stopped dead in its tracks and wouldn't go any further. <clears throat> so Balaam beat the donkey, and the donkey walked along, and the angel appeared again, and the donkey stopped. Three times this happened, and Balaam thought, what's going on with my donkey? Uh, he won't move, he's suddenly become stubborn, and the donkey starts to talk to him. <laughs> And God is actually teaching that God could actually reveal himself through the donkey more so than through this prophet for prophet. 
And then Balaam sees the angel and he knows what's going on. The point that's being made here is that <clears throat> even Balaam was so convinced about the truthfulness of the God of Israel that he told the king of the Moabites that the king did not even have enough silver or gold in his palace to pay for a prophecy against Israel. And so in that sense, <clears throat> the Bible says that uh, God was actually uh, protecting Israel uh, as they uh, conquered the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then in verses 11 through to 13... Joshua reminds Israel that as they crossed the Jordan and as they <clears throat> went into Jericho and all of the other towns uh, uh, in, in Canaan, that there was not one battle which they won with their own sword or bow. It was all of God. Until finally, this great recital of God's grace and God's power finds its climax in verse 13, have a look at that. Verse 13, God says, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. It's been laid out for you. It's been given to you. You've done nothing for it. It was all of God. Now, the question then is, would Israel now serve God faithfully? Someone coined the term cappuccino Christianity. I don't think it takes much imagination to <coughs> figure out what that's describing. Um, cappuccino Christianity, well, think about what cappuccinos. I like cappuccinos. They're light, they're frothy. They're sweet. And at one time they used to even be trendy. <laughs> Cappuccino Christianity doesn't call for repentance. It doesn't call for sacrifice. It doesn't call for trusting God through tough times and persecution. And it, it's a kind of Christianity that mixes very easily with other gods. Think about the gods that lure us, that try to secure the affections of our hearts. The love of money, the love of material possessions, or hedonism, the, the love of pleasure in all of its various forms. Now, I love cappuccinos, and I thoroughly enjoyed the barista coffee at the Coffs Harbour Church a couple of weeks ago. But when we consider who God is, and what God has done for us. When we consider the holiness of God and the greatness of God, is there any room for compromise in our lives? Joshua has just reminded Israel of the undisputable historical facts which they had experienced of God's supreme power and of God's grace towards them. And so in verse 15, he eyeballs them with a challenge, the challenge of which God will you serve? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. 
But notice this. The choice that he offers, <laughs> it's not actually a choice between the true God and the false gods. Because he goes on, after saying, whom will you serve? Uh, make your choice whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, and that's Abraham's family's gods. I guess if you're a traditionalist, you might want to go back to them. Or do you want to serve the gods of the Amorites, the people with whom you live now? I guess that's, if you want to go for relevance, you might serve those gods. But he's saying, take your pick. The gods of beyond the Euphrates of the God, or the gods of the Amorites, which one do you want? Now, it's a ridiculous choice, isn't it? It's an absurd choice. It's like someone preaching the gospel and you know, telling people that they have rebelled against, you've rebelled against your creator, uh, you're slaves to sin, you're rightfully heading for the eternal punishment of God. But the good news is that God in his love has sent his perfect and his only son to suffer the judgment you deserved so that you can be forgiven. And he's used his power to raise him from the dead so that you can enjoy a relationship with God forever. And so how now are you going to live your life? Are you going to live for your money, your career, your travel? Or are you going to live for your family and all these other good things? And you think about it and you say, well, no. <laughs> I'm not going to go for either of those things because these things, as good as they are, they're not exactly what existence is all about. And ultimately, as the author to the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, they, they just don't satisfy. They're like chasing after the wind. And that's the point that Joshua is making. Thinking hard, when we think hard about the other options that are on the table, should actually drive us to want to put God first. So that like Joshua in verse 18, we can say, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Now my friends who renewed their wedding vows on that day, they were more than happy to put on the party, get the minister out there, stand in front of people and look one another in the eye and mouth their promises to each other and then enjoy the party afterwards. But sometimes words can be very cheap. It was only about two or three months later that the husband came over to see me and he said, Scott, she's left me. She's taken off with one of my mates. I just came home and found the note on the table. It seemed that she'd been planning that all along. And uh, it kind of felt rather hollow, actually, the whole experience. Her promises meant nothing. It was just a sham. Just caught up in the moment. Well, Joshua doesn't want Israel to make hollow promises. He doesn't want that. 
And so in verses 16 through to 21, after putting out the challenge, Israel's response to Joshua is quite simple. They say, look, after everything that God has done for us, and they recount some of those things themselves, after everything that God has done for us, count us in. We'll sign up for this. But Joshua, he kind of puts the brakes on it. Joshua's not quite so sure about them. In verse 19, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been so good to you. Now, what sort of an evangelist is Joshua? I mean, these people are saying, look, sign us up. You know, we want to we join in. And he's saying, hold on. Hold your horses there. What sort of an evangelist is he? I'd say he's a very, very good evangelist, actually. Because it's too easy, like my friend with her renewal vows, to just mouth the words. Or just to get caught up in the moment. Just to say, yep, I'll do it because everyone else is going and go along for the ride. Luke 14, there were crowds that were following after Jesus. He'd attracted a great multitude of people and he'd say, well, that's a successful ministry, but he turns to them and he tells them who cannot be his disciple. And the crowds start to sort of melt away. Friends, God is not interested in half-hearted disciples. Jesus has given his all for us so how could our gratitude involve anything less than giving up our entire lives to serve him? Joshua wants Israel to think these things through. He's, he's not trying to drive them away from God. He wants them to think through what are the other options on the table here. He wants them to think of the holiness and the judgment of God. He wants them to be serious in their commitments so that rather than driving them away from God, that they would come to God with the whole of their hearts. Which in verse 21, Israel is prepared to give. Do you see their commitment? Before God, before Joshua... They say on that day, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua knows the frailty of the human heart. Joshua knows that after he is gone, that they will be subject to trials and temptations which might actually lure them away from this commitment that they've made on this day. And so he wants witnesses. He wants three witnesses to this event. And we see the three witnesses, first of all, in verse 22, their words. Their words. That in the future, if they are to be tempted or if they are even to turn away from God, that the words that they have spoken on that day will bear testimony against them. And they'll remember those words. 
Secondly, in verse 24, Joshua cuts a covenant, which means he would have brought out an animal sacrifice. He would have sacrificed the animal, would have cut it in two, and the people would have walked through the division of the animal. They would have recommitted themselves. Israel would have recommitted herself to God. And Joshua's written down laws that they will obey. And they've agreed to that. And he's got it in writing. So that in the future they can go back to that. This is the commitment that we made to God on that day. And then finally, he establishes an even more permanent witness. Verse 26, second part of it. Which says, Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Remember where they are. They're in Shechem. They're in Shechem. There's an oak tree in Shechem where 600 years earlier in Genesis chapter 12, their forefather Abraham met with God. And it was there on that very spot that God said to Abraham, have a look around you, Abram. See all of this land? I'm going to give it to you. This will be the possession of your descendants. Right here at the oak in Shechem. Right here where now stands a stone monument which will bear witness to Israel throughout their future that if they're ever lured away from the Lord God, if they're ever tempted to go after the gods of the Amorites, if they're ever tempted to put God as anything less than first in their lives, they'll look back at this stone and the stone will bear witness to them, will bear witness of the promise that they make, that they have made on this day. It will prick their conscience whenever they are untrue to God. Now, it's, I think about it, it's not a bad way for Joshua to finish his ministry, is it? It's <laughs> uh, a great end to, end to his ministry. Because after this, the next thing is he dies and he's buried. I wonder, I've noticed in the media, I wonder if you've noticed this, that <clears throat> when, when they talk about a well-known person who's a Christian, you know, it might be a politician or a sports star or a... Uh, entertainer who is actually a Christian, uh, how do they refer to that person? Have you noticed that they tend to, when they talk about the person, they they tend to say that he or she is a committed Christian? You notice that? Is there any such thing as a non-committed Christian? No. Christ's death on the cross was not that cheap. That you can be an uncommitted Christian. There's only one kind of Christian, that's committed Christian. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after explaining what Christ has done to save us from our sin, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies, your whole selves, as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. If you're going to offer your whole body to God, that's what I call commitment, don't you? That's the only kind of Christian. How are you going with that? You're still feeling fresh in your commitment to God? You're feeling a bit jaded? Have you even made that commitment to God? Our commitment to God should be <laughs> like the commitment of love in marriage. Those three things, remember, unconditional. Because we don't just love God through the easy times. Our commitment to God is to be exclusive. We don't, God doesn't share us with anyone else. Uh, we are to not serve anything above him. And thirdly, our commitment to God is to be lifelong. We press on. We, we continue, we press on towards that goal to which God has called us heavenward in Christ. Like Caleb, who at 85 wanted to go out and fight the tough guys. Like Joshua, who uh, died with his boots on. We want to serve God to the very end because we've got an eternal inheritance, an eternal promised land. We do so because of what Christ has done for us. The, the words of the hymn are so true. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your grace and your power that has worked so mightily in our lives that we can be forgiven of our sin and that we can have that sure and certain hope of the promised eternal reality. Father, how could we give you anything less than our whole selves? Father, we pray that in the trials and the temptations of life, that we would look back to that monument, that monument of an empty cross, that we would press on, being faithful to you as all our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.